This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret. By now, some of the major publicity folks, the folks that email me about maybe a new book or someone they're excited about, they and I have formed a relationship, and they know the kind of guests I like to have on self-work. So when one of them, who I know pretty well by this time, sent me a description of Bob Waldinger and called him warm and humble, I knew I wanted him on self-work because sometimes that's hard to find. Bob has plenty of things he could crow about, as we'd say in Arkansas. He's a Harvard professor, and he's the 20-year director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And his TED Talk is one of the 10 most popular of all time, with over 43 million views. I'll have those links in your show notes. What's the Harvard study all about? It's the longest scientific study of happiness ever conducted. Here's what they say. Radical for its time in 1938, this first-of-its-kind study is now in its 84th year with an 84% retention rate. Even JFK was a participant. Bob Waldinger is understandably proud of the wide range of data they've amassed through the years as they wanted to focus on what keeps you healthy rather than what makes you sick. And his new book, All About It, came out three days ago, and it's called The Good Life. It explains in detail the most common misconceptions about happiness, what social fitness is and how to exercise it, how to understand the influence of your childhood on your adult relationships, what you're likely getting wrong about achievement, and the first step you can take if you want to live a good life. We had a wonderful conversation, but not only do I hope you enjoy it, I hope that you'll learn more about what will truly bring you happiness. But first, let's hear from one of our proud sponsors. What better time than now to decide that you're going to do something for yourself in 2023 that will only add to your sense of well-being, where you can begin every single day with an act of true self-care, not a bubble bath, not even a therapy session, but by drinking one glass full of 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, We support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I use it every day and love this habit because if you're like me, self-care can get lost in a day full of kids, work, meals, and whatever else comes along. AG1 knows that people who listen to self-work are seeking to make their lives better. So Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. Become your own green machine in the first hour you're up and around. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash self-work. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take ownership of your health in 2023 and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. It's my honor to bring you Dr. Bob Waldinger. Well, let's talk about The Good Life. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Good Life, and you wrote it with Mark Schultz. Yes. Is he another Harvard professor? 
No, he's yeah. a psychology professor at Bryn Mawr College. Oh, okay. And we met up here at Harvard. We were both uh, studying in the lab of a researcher who was our mentor. And that's how we got to be how first colleagues and then very much close friends. And uh, that so, was evident in the book that y'all are close friends. Yeah. So people will know what we're talking about. The whole book was based on the Harvard study of adult development, which has actually gone on from 1938 to the present. How long have you and Mark been shepherding it? Since 2002. So 20 okay. years. Wow. Um, I'm the fourth director uh, and uh, you know, so my three predecessors were really dogged and persistent in Boy, making sure this study continued. Reading it was affirming because a lot of the things that I've learned as a therapist were in there and some of the things I've learned personally. But you could back it up with all this, you know, research and and questionnaires and speaking about dogged, these these people who go out and, and are interviewed or are who are interviewing and then those people who have hung in there and allowed their lives to be um, not microscopically looked over, but at least, you know, lots of detail and lots of personal revelation. Yes. yes. You know, and we, we say to our participants, you are giving a gift to the world. You're giving a gift to science by doing this because they really are. Yeah. Uh, Because it's so unique. I mean, we've no other study has, has studied people over 85 years, you know, entire lives. And so when, when we try to encourage people, please don't drop out, and most people haven't, we encourage them by saying, nobody can replace you, and this is such a precious gift you're giving. I would totally agree with that. And you did, you were, you mentioned some other studies who are, that are longitudinal over time, but obviously this one is the longest. And I have several favorite quotes. I have eight pages of notes here. We won't go oh my gosh. eight pages. <laughs> Um, when I write, I learn things. I love this one. A good life is forged from the very things that make it hard. Yes. Loved Absolutely. that quote. You say, we're terrible at predicting what will make us happy. And the whole study is about what really leads to happiness, what is truly the core of happiness. And so if you just talk about that, and I'll interject when I, when I can. Absolutely. So what we found um, was actually the core of the book is that finding, we found that relationships are the kind of bedrock of well-being. And so, you know, rather than thinking about happiness, which is more a momentary up and down kind of feeling like I'm happy right now talking with you, but I might not be happy an hour from now if something troubling happens. But this this bedrock of well-being, what we found is that the people who paid close attention to and invested in connections with other people as they went through their lives, those were the people who stayed the healthiest as well as the happiest. So, and that's very tangible evidence. Yes. And and we have, you know, thousands of lives now that we've studied and all the evidence points to this as well as other studies. Because as you know, no single study of this kind can prove anything by itself. But when several studies, many studies point in the same direction, then we can feel pretty confident about it. And so what makes us terrible at predicting what would make us happy? What are the factors? Because you say that several times in the book, we're horrible predictors. Yeah. There are are many factors. One, I think, is 
all the messaging we get from our culture and and that we accidentally give each other all day long. So mm. think about the messages we get um, about what will make us happy if you buy certain things. You know, if you use this face cream, you'll always look young and be bright and energetic. You know, if you if you serve this pasta to your family, you'll have wonderful family dinners all the time, right? You know, you get these <laughs> messages, visual, uh, you know, in advertising about buying things. And if you buy the right things, you'll be happier. Um, similarly, you know, we end up kind of curating our lives for each other, especially on social media. Yeah, that's you you know, think about, think. I, you know, if, if you ever go to Facebook or Instagram and you see what people post, I mean, I don't post the pictures of myself in the morning when I wake up, you know, <laughs> feeling lousy, right? Feeling depressed no. or feeling like I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I post the pictures where we're at a beautiful, happy dinner or we're on a beach or so. And we know that we do that, but then when we look at each other's lives, you can accidentally get the impression, oh my gosh, those people have a great life. Those people have it figured out. And I don't. And I think that that leads us to believe that, that you know, money, achievement, getting going to all the beautiful places are the core of what's going to make us happy. And that's why we lose sight of this fact that investing in relationships, which is less glamorous and longer oh, yeah. term, Mm-hmm. that that's going to make us bottom line more content with our lives. You said something about we judge each other internally. Oh yeah. Externally. Yeah, one one of my teachers taught me that saying that's right. it's, what is it's it? we're, we're always comparing our insides to other people's outsides. That's it. That's it. And that, that, that it's really a comparison. Concerned. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, we do it all. I do it all the time. Sure. Yeah. So what what about this study has surprised you, mm. if anything? Yes. Well, I mean, first of all, this finding about relationships surprised me because, yes, I know that the mind and the body are connected, but really this strongly connected, like that loneliness could be as powerful as cigarette smoking or obesity for breaking down your health. Like, wow, how could and that I, be? And I want to point out, this is backed up by tangible medical Lots of lots of data, lots of scientific studies. I mean, this is hard science here. And then another thing that surprised me and encouraged me was how different the life paths are that people took and were happy and were content, right? There's so many ways to live a life. And that that means that there's so many opportunities to to be on your own path. Um there's a Joseph Campbell quote that I love. Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Power of Myth, mm-hmm. he, he said, if the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's path. <laughs> and, I love that. <laughs> you know, and, and, and we find that, you know, with our study, like you probably saw all the stories and all the life stories in the book which are real life stories. They are disgised to protect privacy, but Mm -hmm. these life stories are all so different and they're not all happy and content, certainly not all the time. And, and I think the surprise for me was first, how, how many different ways there are to have a happy life. And also that it's never too late, that that's one of the things we learned that we, 
when we followed people through their whole lives, sometimes in their 60s or their 70s, for the first time, they found love or they Mm -hmm. found a group of friends when they never thought they'd find that. And so, you know, for me, it's the most hopeful message for those of us who can think, "Uh, it's too late for me. I'm just not any good at this. Not true. According to our study. Yeah. But, you know, for the skeptics out there, (laughs) maybe you should talk about just what a participant agrees to do and d- during a, the 60 years there in the in the program can you kind of tell people what is it that you do with these participants so that you have all this data yeah we do so many things we started out with interviews and medical exams when they were teenagers and we went to their homes and interviewed their parents um and then we asked them to fill out questionnaires about their lives Every two years, we go and interview them in their homes. We eventually started using modern measures. So we did, um, we drew blood for DNA. Like in 1938, DNA wasn't even imagined. And now now we're studying their DNA. We put people into the MRI scanner and look at how their brains work. Um, You know, there are all these ways that we try to get at the big question of what helps people thrive as they go through life. Mm-hmm. And even live longer. Yes. And healthier. Yes. Right. By the way, I don't think my brain was functioning at all when I was in my 20s. I think it was, I think <laughs> well, it was stuck. <laughs> you know, our brains were just functioning differently because we. Ch- <laughs> that's the other thing I, I want to name, which is that, you know, I used to think, gee, once I'm in my 20s and I choose, you know, if I'm lucky and I find a partner, which I did, and and I find a, a job that I like, which I did, then I'm done. I'm kind of cooked. I'm developed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's so not the case. And when we study lives, you know, think about how much you have changed during your adult life mm-hmm. and how much your sense of yourself and your sense of what life's about has changed from the time you were in your 20s. So adult development turns out to be this really rich time of change and growth uh, that that we can sometimes forget about. Because, you know, when we look at children, child development is so clear. It happens right before our eyes. Adult development is more subtle. It takes longer. And so I've loved being able to to study this area of oh, sure. human life. Well, come to think of that, you actually, you and Mark in the book, divide up. You say that you're living a lifetime of relationships and you start with adolescence and then young adulthood, midlife and late life. And I have another quote that I love. Uh, the unexpected is ordinary. So that was a good one. <laughs> yeah. You know, with adolescence being about walking the tightrope, you called it, making friends, leaving family, staying close to family, you know, all that kind of turmoil. And then young adulthood is kind of creating a safety net and making sure you, your development isn't what you call arrested. It's your competency and intimacy are the two goals. And midlife is generativity, expanding our concern beyond self. And then late later life, which I'm in, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is, is you really do you're happier than you've ever been. And that I've heard that for a long time. Yeah. And isn't that surprising? Yeah. I mean, when I looked, you know, when I was younger and I looked at older people, I thought, oh, that must be so gloomy. Yes. That must be so depressing. <laughs> and no, oh, 
I, I am happier now than I've ever been, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm in my early 70s. And so, uh, yeah. Um, what about diversity? You, you mentioned in the book how the originators of the study tried to build into the study more diversity because the, the original group was Harvard students, which was back in 1938, probably a, a lot of white men and oh. all of them. And so you went to the uh, so a rough neighborhood in Boston, I think, and and actually pulled together some participants from there. But I also still wondered about how you've tried to uh, commingle diversity or make sure that as the study has progressed, it's more and more diverse. Yes, yes, absolutely. So first of all, yes, we went to Boston's poorest neighborhoods and also the most troubled families to try to look for kids who were having healthy developmental paths, even though they were in difficult situations growing up. And about half of those kids were from immigrant families. So not everybody was, you know, a Boston native. Uh, A lot of people from the Middle East, from Eastern Europe, from other parts of the world. Um, And then uh, when I came on board, we brought in women. We brought in first the, the partners of our original men. And then we've reached out to the second generation, more than half of whom are women. So we've got more diversity, both, you know, in terms of social class, in terms of ethnic origin, and then gender. Um, You know, we've broadened it. What we haven't done, and we find it difficult to do, is broaden it to For example, what looks like diversity now, African-Americans, Latinos, uh, people of other sort of populations that we now think of as so important in our culture. Um, And the reason why we haven't is that that we are unique. We are an important study because we have all these years of back information. If we bring in a new group of people now, we won't have that. Right. So what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we're going to leave it to our colleagues, to other researchers, to study people of color, to study people in different parts of the globe, to look at these same things. So that's where we're hoping that the field keeps heading toward more and more diversity. Yeah, that makes sense. Rather than trying to start all over, but you might contaminate the data you have now um, if you do that. Yeah, I get it. I loved the chapter distinctions because really it did focus me as the reader on, okay, what are we talking about now? And then you call it social fitness, meaning your ability to be in relationship well with other people. Would that be a good definition of that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there's three different designations. You want to be able to give and receive risk. And you use the metaphor of learning new dance steps. And then this one I really loved, radical curiosity. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yes. Well, this idea of social fitness came to us because we saw that many people didn't take care of their relationships. And what happened was that perfectly good relationships withered away. Mm -hmm. Uh, So friendships, right? You know, my my high school friends or my college friends or my army buddies, whatever it might be. And it wasn't because anybody was unhappy or angry. It was that we just didn't pay attention. 
And so what we began to see was that what was needed, and the healthiest people did this, was a more active approach. Like reaching, you know, realizing I haven't seen my friend in a, in a couple of weeks or a month. I'm going to reach out or and see year. if she wants, to, or a year, see, reach out, see if she wants to get together, go for a walk, or at least have a chat. Um, that that active approach is what we're thinking of as social fitness. And that, mm-hmm. that it's a practice. It, it's like physical fitness. You know, if you go to the gym today, you don't come home and say, good, I've done that. I'm done. I don't ever have to do that again. No, we think of it as an ongoing practice. And what we'd like to encourage people to think about is their relationships as an ongoing treasure that you want to help maintain. Um, What if someone's listening and says, but I'm depressed and I don't have the energy to be proactive or or I get anxious, you know, when I'm around other, I've gotten more anxious as I've grown older. Did you... Did you try to assess what level of mental issues or dynamics or emotional dynamics that they were struggling with was actually, I mean, within the participants? We did assess that. We assessed, like, how many people got depressed before age 50. And uh, there was a, you know, a sizable percentage. Because as we know, one in five people has an episode of depression in their lifetime. So we did assess that. And... Um, I think you're raising a really important point, which is that emotional distress, mental illness can make us not feel like or not be able to reach out to other people. And that that's a really important reason. That's one more important reason for getting the mental health care that's available uh, to try to lift yourself out of that depression or ease that anxiety so that you're freer to take the risk of, you know, reaching out to somebody you'd like to meet or or even just recontacting an old friend. When we're depressed, we think, oh, nobody's going to want to hear from me. Um, and so it really is a challenge. And so what I would say, and I know you would say this too professionally, that take care of your mental health because that will enable you to take care of your relationships. Well, and I'm thinking as you talk that the very act of reaching out to a therapist is about connection. Absolutely. And so how often have I, you know, as my patient and I've been talking to say, well, you know, they've said, I've just enjoyed being in relationship with you. And I said, so where could you get this kind of trust or, you know, this kind of um, ability to be in the relationship outside of the therapeutic relationship? You want to generalize it to their to their just daily life. Well, you've talked about Sally or Felicia, you know, could you perhaps reach out to them? So it's I think in the process of connecting with a therapist that you begin to challenge yourself. I, I, I'm not going to be rejected because I'm depressed. It's not so unusual for people to be anxious. You know, I, there are a lot of anxious people. Right. So you can kind of normalize what you're going through rather than saying, I have something wrong with me that is going to keep me out of a, a reliable and, and meaningful connection with other people. Yes. And just the experience of coming to trust a therapist, realizing that the therapist accepts you uh, doesn't judge you, uh, can set the stage for saying, okay, this is possible. There may be other people out there in the world who will accept me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And be interested. And that's, you know, I, I want to get back to what you asked about with radical curiosity. Um, but we found that that the people who were 
the best at both maintaining existing relationships and making new ones were the people who were curious. Because if you think about it, everybody feels flattered when you're genuinely interested in them, when you're curious. Tell me about yourself. Tell me, what's that like? What's your work like? Or, you know, what's that hobby you have that you love so much? Tell me more about it, right? That if we bring that curiosity, we immediately get somebody interested in connecting with us because people love to talk about themselves. Sure. So what, so we're saying, even with a stale relationship, you know, if you think about it, you know, if family gatherings, sometimes you have family members, you say, oh, I know this person so well, and I know what they're going to say. And <laughs> I don't have it, you know, try to learn something new, be curious, like yeah, what's ask the question? yourself, what's here that I haven't noticed before? Exactly. What's here that <laughs> that was one of my meditation teachers instruction. And it's really works with relationships, you know, so you're sitting across from that cousin, who, <laughs> you know, always tells corny jokes, and just, you know, and, and you just think, Oh, here we go again. Just ask yourself, what's here with this person that I've never noticed. And it, it becomes a really interesting exercise that can lead you to some new kind of conversations. There could not be a better lead in for my next comment, <laughs> which is because the radical curiosity leads to this kind of attention. You're paying attention to someone and you say attention is the most basic form of love. I also just reveled in that because I think that, you know, I, I work a lot with couples too, and they'll sometimes they'll say we're so lonely, even though we're partnered, that because I don't feel like you really attend to me, I don't feel like you're attuned to me. You know, when we're all sitting around a table and everybody's looking at their cell phones, no one is attending to the, the other person. In fact, they're not purposefully, perhaps, but unintentionally shutting them out. And so, you know, I just, I think that's such a, a, a clue, again, tied in with that radical curiosity. Well, and it's the greatest gift we have to give somebody. You know, your undivided attention, and it's the it's getting more and more rare because, as you say, we have these screens that just capture our attention and hold it. And so if we can, like, I have to tell myself, okay, I'm sitting here working at my laptop. When my wife comes and wants to say something to me, I have to say to her, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop whatever I'm doing. I'm going to turn. I'm going to look at my wife, and I'm going to listen right? It's a, it's, a, it's a practice and we can do it, but it really means being intentional about it. Mm-hmm. And I have to be intentional every day. It's not something that comes naturally to me, but it really works. Mm. And that's all tied in with showing affection. And some people are very comfortable with that and some people are not. And so, you know, do you have any hints about how to become more comfortable with being affectionate with other people? I mean, what does this study show about maybe a part of your life where you could not and then you did or you learned how to? Yeah. You know, many people learn how to by being with someone who expresses affection and by being with someone who expresses appreciation. Because as you know, if we didn't grow up in situations where people were affectionate, where people expressed appreciation, you don't learn it. Mm -mm. And in fact, it may feel foreign. And many of our folks found partners or good friends who were just warm and affectionate, and they learned how 
how warming that can be, how nurturing that can be. And then they started to learn to do it. And I think, you know, so there are things we can do. Um, They've done a lot of research on expressing gratitude. Um, And that what they find is that people who even write down in a journal what they're grateful for um, are happier. Mm -hmm. It makes them happier. And if they express that gratitude to someone, Mm-hmm. It makes them happier still. So, oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say sometimes what I've done is I've challenged people. Um, think about someone you're grateful to, but you really haven't told them in a while, or you haven't told them as much as you'd like to. Yeah. And just reach out to them right now. And people will come back and say, oh my gosh, people were so touched. They were so happy I reached out. They were, you know. And so what you notice is that if you start expressing affection, expressing gratitude, expressing appreciation, you will get so much back. So expressing that, you know, including just smiling at people. Yeah. I mean, if you smile at the person who checks you out at the grocery store or, you know, that that, that ends up starting uh, something that can end up in a very pleasant conversation. And certainly in a, in a gosh, in a classroom, in a workplace, mm-hmm. that can have huge positive effects. A question's coming to me that I didn't even think about as I was reading the book, but you follow especially two men. I know one's name was Leo. I'm trying to remember the other one. And John. John. I was thinking it was Joe, but I knew that one right. John. And John is what you describe as probably the least happiest person you followed. And Leo is the most happy. Um, how as a clinician, did you learn all of this and not want to somehow intercede? <laughs> oh, boy, you're right. I mean, I did want to intercede I for John. Um, I will say that at one point, John came to us saying, my wife and I, are having so much trouble in our relationship. Can you find us a couples therapist? And we did that. Oh, so good. We are not a hands-off research project. Okay. I think it's one of the reasons. <laughs> that would be you know, hard. It'd be hard to be hands-off. And I think also it's one of the reasons why our participants have stayed in the study. They've remained loyal to us because mm-hmm. we do show, that. You show so, personal you know, interest. Mm-hmm. We show personal interest and we try to help when people are hurting. Um, not, you know, not too much. And we don't, we don't like, I didn't do the therapy myself, but I found them a good couples therapist. Yeah. Yeah. I I have a question. How did you account for the idea that when people are studied, they change, you know, when, when you're studying someone, when you're observing them, that actually changes what you're observing. Such a good question. We weren't a hands-off study and that's a scientifically, uh, the ideal is to have a completely uh, clean, sterile. antiseptic, <laughs> sterile field in which you observe, uh, you know, an experiment that's that, that's so controlled. We didn't do that because it's almost impossible to do adult developmental research and not affect the people you're studying. Sure. Yeah. We asked people at one point, we, it was a question we asked everybody, how, did, how does being in this study affect you? Some people said, it was just annoying. I hated all your questions. And some, you know, and some people said, no, it didn't affect me at all. But many people said, this was very important. It made me 
take stock of my life. And I knew that at regular intervals, I was going to get these questions that were going to get me to think about what's important in my life and where my life is going. And so we undoubtedly changed how, you know, their lives. You just can't um, not. Yeah. We couldn't not. Right. Right. I get it. People love models. And um, you have this wiser model, which is watch, interpret, select, engage, and reflect. That's wiser. It's all about, you know, how to attach to people well. And I, this is maybe my very favorite quote um, about watching. It says, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> yes. Which we do as therapists I a lot, right? out loud when, <laughs> yeah. I, when I read that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the wiser model is a way to slow down a challenge. So if you think about it, personal challenges are always coming at us. Like somebody does something and you don't know why they did it. And um, and then you, you find your mind is filling in the blank. So, you know, one example is my boss sends me a note saying, I have to talk to you right away. And I don't know why. Don't know more information. Well, mm-hmm. that's a blank screen. And I find my mind putting in all kinds of, you know. You start telling yourself stories. Tell myself stories. Oh, my gosh. He's going to fire me. Or I've, what have I done wrong? Or, you know. And, and so what the wiser model does is it says when somebody does something and you're not sure what's happening or why they did it, slow it down with these steps. So watch, first of all, gather all the information you can, then interpret, like say, well, what are the possible interpretations? Maybe my boss isn't mad at me. Maybe he's not going to fire me. Maybe there's something else going on. And then select responses. So my response to my boss's note could be, I'm sorry, I don't have time. But, (laughs) you know, how well would that work? Or... I could say, you know, so I can have these different responses. You know, ideally it would be, sure, when would you like to meet or, you know. Yeah. Um, and that, so we, we, in, we select our response and then we engage. So then I do something, you know, I, I meet the response. It could be just asking for more information. Like you, you did that thing at the party and it upset me. Can you tell me more about it or can you tell me what? What was going on for you? So you engage in that way. You you pick a response. Like could be just to be more curious. Um, and then you reflect. You say, okay, how did that work? Did it work to avoid my boss and never meet with him? Well, no, that didn't work so well. Right. <laughs> did it right. did right. it work just to use my story and get mad at this person who did something I didn't understand? No, nah, that didn't work so well. Um, and so it's a way, essentially, it's just a way to slow down those moments when, when you can, when you're confused, when what's happening is uncertain, and you need to spend some time paying more attention so that you don't, um, you don't end up sending that angry email and then realize that nobody was meaning you any harm, right? Um, you don't end up getting angry at your sister because she offended you when she absolutely meant no offense. Right, right. Uh, Not assuming you know motivation or intention. Yeah, yeah. I could ask you so many more questions, but you talk about getting unstuck where you're 
you're constructing your reality with the things you believe and the things you feel that are harmful to you or, or not harmful to you. They're actually good for you. Can you talk a little bit about what you feel like, how people can get unstuck? Well, we all do get stuck. We get caught in, in certain patterns of behavior, like with our partner or with a sibling, you know, where we're stuck in these roles. Um, we can get stuck at work with a, you know, a relationship with a boss or a coworker. And I think a lot of times we can find our way out of that stuck place. Uh, sometimes just by paying more attention to other possibilities, sometimes by talking to a trusted friend, mm-hmm. but then sometimes it's by finding a therapist. You know, many people get on, get stuck and then get unstuck in their lives without getting any kind of therapy. But sometimes we need therapy. And so, for example, I was stuck. As a young man, my 20s, I had had long relationships with people and they weren't working out. You know, and I thought I'm never going to find a a partner because we keep, it doesn't work out. And, And I realized that I wasn't working this out on my own. So I found a therapist and boy, was that helpful. Yeah. Because that that therapist was able to help me understand the patterns I was getting into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and See the bigger would, picture. The bigger picture. And then I got unstuck yeah. and have had a, <laughs> have, I've been married for 36 years and it seems to be working out <laughs> seems pretty to well. Be <laughs> Speaking of work, you also talk about the importance of having a best friend at work mm-hmm. and that having, we spend so much time at work. Now, of course, the pandemic changed a lot of that with more in-house kinds of working. Some people are trying to go back. Some people are not. But even after the pandemic, do you think that that's imp- still important, that the work relationship chapter that you talked about? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, we spend so much of our waking life at work. And so the idea that we don't have anybody who we know personally or who knows us is so lonely. And... um as we talked about in the book, they did a study asking millions of workers, do you have a best friend at work? Do you have anybody who knows you personally? Only three out of 10 said they had a best friend. Oh, wow. And those people were happier. They were more productive workers. They were less likely to change jobs because work was a place they wanted to go to because they sure. had friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what we're finding and, and, Again, many other studies are finding that focusing on your relationships could just be one or two relationships at work can make a huge difference in your happiness and your engagement in your work life. And, And even remotely, we hopefully will find ways to do that with each other. Yeah, I hope so, too. So I want to show the book again. It's The Good Life. Lessons from the world's longest scientific study of happiness create a more meaningful and satisfying life. And I just am so honored to have you on. And please tell Mark Schultz that I wish he could have been with us. I would have loved to have met him too, but I really appreciate it. I know your book's coming out January the 10th, and this will air three days after that. So thank you so much, Bob. Well, thank you, Margaret. This is a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Take care. I want to thank you for being here today. 
You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can check me out on Instagram. I love to post there. And of course, my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, is available. Thank you once again for being here. Please take very, very good care of you, the people you love, and of your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.